reading from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 10 through 17. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against the lofty mountains and against the uplifted hills, against every high tower and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. This is the word of God. A reading from the book of Romans, chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that... Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet 
will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. So I'm not going to let Tyler just be the only one to self-deprecate. Uh, I, uh, I once I ran into somebody asking about... Uh, I was going to do that. I was going to do it. I really was. I was going to pray. And I ran into a, a guy who works for the EV Free uh, Churches, and I was explaining to him what I do. And he said to me, in all seriousness and with, a, with, with affection, oh, that's kind of like a junk drawer pastor. And I just cleaned out my junk drawer yesterday and all the different things I have in there that I've just, you know, and I'm like, yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> Let's pray. Our God in heaven, thank you so much for the truths of your word. Thank you for the book of Romans. Thank you for baptism. Thank you for our deadness to sin. And thank you for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that as we look at this passage in Romans this morning, that you would give us insight and you would give us encouragement. Amen. Have a seat, everybody. <laughs> so, <laughs> the date was August 30th, 1992. I stood on the sand in my bare feet, ready to address the group. When I introduced myself, I got some low-key cheering from the crowd. Not unusual for a youth group gathering. Then I gave my testimony. Moments later, I made my way through the waves and ripples out to the predetermined spot. Then my youth pastor, Bob Easton, explained to me what was about to happen. Then he dunked me under the cold salt water, baptizing me in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That day in Corona Del Mar, California, I couldn't have known where I would be 30 years later. But I always know I can look back to that day as a significant moment in my life. Something I can look back to as a sign and seal of God's faithful work. Earlier this year, I was lucky enough to revisit that site. And it's actually, it was a rather famous site for baptisms during the Jesus movement in the 70s. And it's not a coincidence that the outpouring of the Spirit during the Jesus movement is tied to a baptismal place, in my opinion. It remains a powerful testimony to God putting to death our sin and raising us up with him. Our brother St. Paul really knew how to turn a phrase. For all of the long, meandering phrases he uses sometimes, there were, he also had a wonderfully succinct punchiness to his writing, too. Here, with his dramatic pen, he does it again. Last week, Pastor Christian covered the tough teaching of original sin, and it leaves us with a paradox. Romans 5.20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So with that truth, Paul begins chapter 6 with what is meant to be an absurd question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And this question ends up being the catalyst for our teaching this morning from Romans. And even though the question has an obvious answer to Paul, it's an important one. Why? Because you see, we as humans look for loopholes. I have had unbelievers during debates about Christianity ask me versions of this very question. Well, if grace is what saves you, what does it matter what you do? If, gra if, there's, if there's more grace with more sin, why not go on a sinathon? 
Well, Paul says, may it never be. So we have this famous question and negation. I'm going to take this teaching and focus on two major points from this passage. First, I want to highlight the truth that we are considered dead to sin. Second, I want to highlight that we can consider baptism as our sacramental reminder of that reality. First, we're considered dead to sin. I want to call attention to four places in this passage where Paul calls this truth out. Verse 2. After Paul says, may it never be, he points, makes this point for the first time. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul asserts the power of his argument. He makes the claim that we cannot live in death. The peace that we have made with God that Pastor Andine spoke about two weeks ago has resulted in a death, the death of our sin. To Paul, that is a fact as real as death. But Paul develops this further. Verse 6. Our old self was crucified with him, Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I want to call attention here to the, the language Paul uses. He doesn't just say that our old self died. He covered that. He says it was crucified. Paul is making a direct connection between us and Jesus. Isn't that stunning? And he really doesn't build an argument as much as he just assumes it. This will be important again as we contemplate where baptism works to all this. Verse 7, one who has died has been set free from sin. The next point. Set free is an interesting phrase. We are now free to, to not sin. We are still free to sin, but many, and Paul and many others would say that sin is not true freedom. Living in accordance with the good will of God is true freedom. This verse shows that part of the death to sin is a new life. Finally, verse 11, so you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. Paul ends our passage with what is an important word for Paul. Paul spends much of his letter to the Romans dealing with the realities of the frailty of creation. He knows that we still sin. It's not lost on him. And in fact, the next verse, verse 12, Paul implores his readers that they are not to let sin reign in their mortal bodies. This denotes that we can still follow the passions of our earthly state and we can still live in sin and death even as Christians. So Paul's answer is that we must consider ourselves dead to sin. I kept hearing R.E.M. Michael Stipe saying, consider this from losing my religion whenever I was. This word is one that Paul has used a lot in Romans. I didn't know how many times he uses this word until I studied this passage. He uses this word all the time, especially in chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 3, when it is said that Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the same word. Credited is the same word. So while you may be able to see that you are not dead to sin and that you still sin, consider it so. The word consider is used several other times in chapter 4, wherein Abraham and us are credited with righteousness. 
Think about the word credit. When we use a credit card, a merchant in the store trusts that the credit card company will pay them. And it is understood that we will pay the credit card company. And there's a consideration of wealth that the, pur that the purchaser has wealth, whether it's true or not. Adoption is another example. Paul uses this example in chapter 8 to remind us of who we are in Christ. Due to adoption, we are considered God's children despite our sin and rebellion. Paul is instructing us, consider yourselves dead to sin. Do so just as really as God considers you righteous in your faith in Christ. So with that reality, I wanted to do something this morning that I really wanted to talk about baptism. Uh, baptism is something that touches all of us, and we all have a very specific story as to how we, we come to how we feel about baptism. We should consider baptism, in my opinion, as our sacramental reminder of our death to sin and our resurrection in Christ. Verses 3 and 4 make several references to baptism. So I'd love to ponder that. In discussing this, I want this to be a celebration of the Anglican view of baptism. It's not an attack on other views. All views have their own beauty. But I wanted to do this because very few of us have come to this version of the faith. Who we, a lot of us did not grow up in Anglicanism. We all come to the subject with our own thoughts and history. With your indulgence, let me briefly share mine. I grew up in the Quaker tradition. We spiritualized baptism, so I never saw a baptism growing up. When I made my way to the EV free tradition in my teens, I finally saw baptisms for the first time. And there, it was seen as a public proclamation and an act of obedience, a proclamation of faith. And that's one that I participated in, as I just recounted for you. In this tradition, baptism is specifically something the believer chooses to do. And since baptism is only done after the individual explicitly proclaims it, the emphasis ends up being on the choice of that person. After I became an adult, my wife and I made our way into the Reformed and Anglican traditions, and we became, when we became parents, we had to figure out, what do we think about this? What do, we, what do we want to do? And we decided to baptize our children as infants. And to be clear, the, the Anglican baptismal service includes a proclamation of faith, but often our services involve infants or, chunk, or young children, so it's just not the recipient of baptism that makes the proclamation of faith. The recipient is too small or unaware, so the parent does it. And this drives home one of the things we believe about baptism. Baptism both becomes and points to a grace that happens to us, and it points to our unity with Jesus. While oftentimes that can accompany a proclamation of faith by the baptized, it doesn't always. The tension we have to live with as 21st century believers is that there is one baptism, but the universal church is not united in its meaning. We live in peace with that fact. 
But at the same time, each church does have to make decisions about what it means within their expression of the faith. So when I was preparing this teaching, I was taken back, some of you maybe were too, in my imagination to our Easter vigil service. This is the service on the Saturday night before Easter Sunday. I've come to see so much of the, what we believe as Anglicans can be seen in the nuts and bolts of our services throughout the year. Whether you have been to an Easter vigil or not, I can tell you that this passage, Romans 6, 3 through 11, is always read at the Easter vigil service. The service starts with an initial prayer and, and chant. Then this prayer is said. Let us hear the record of God's saving deeds in history, remembering how he saved his people in ages past and in the fullness of time sent his son to be our redeemer. And let us pray that God may bring to completion in each of us the saving work he has begun. That's followed by dramatic and creative renditions of many Old Testament stories and passages. Shout out to Chris Scanlon back there and his team. <laughs> And then when we reach the reality of the resurrection, the great hallelujah is said, bells are rung, keys are shaken. And then, oftentimes, there are baptisms. And with all the wonder of the service up to this point, I may love the simple beauty of what is next even more. Romans 6, 3 through 11 is read right after we have seen people baptized. Corey and I were driving in this morning and we were reminding, we could hear Rodney Nelson's voice saying it. He's read it a lot of times. It's a wonderful word picture and I think that it drives home for us what we see as another reality of baptism. Baptism is a sign and seal of our deliverance. And we see it as a deliverance in a similar way as to the other acts of deliverance in the Old Testament. While the individual's faith plays a vital role in that, the power of baptism lies in what it points us toward and God's work, not ours. Let me read verses three to four again to drive this home. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul hasn't emphasized baptism much yet in Romans. And in these two verses, he mentions it three times. Why? Because he can think of no other powerful reminder of the truth of our death to sin than the remarkable symbolism in our baptism. And again, Paul doesn't build an extensive argument around it. Commentator Leon Morris points out that the way Paul speaks here, he assumes that his readers know this about baptism. And this reality assumes that this reality that Paul assumes goes beyond our deadness to sin, as great of a piece of news that is. Paul says that we are unified with Christ in his death. We looked at verse 6 a few moments ago and the reality that our old self was crucified with Jesus, but remarkably, these verses go beyond that and tell us we are united with him in the resurrection. Can I get a praise God? Thank you. What a truth. We're united with him in death and in his new life. But why is this extended to children? Well, here's what our catechism says. 
Question 129, why is it appropriate to baptize infants? Because it is a sign of God's promise that they are embraced in the covenant community of Christ's church. Those who in faith and repentance present infants to be baptized vow to raise them in the knowledge and fear of the Lord with the expectation that they will one day profess Christian faith as their own. This is obviously a view that is not everyone's, but there is a beauty about it. It emphasizes that there is a spiritual reality to our baptism. Baptism is a work of Christ, where the truth of our sinful self being killed, buried, and resurrected in new life is symbolized. This must be accepted in faith, but faith is also a gift. We don't earn it. Baptism is a grace and a marker of entrance into the church. Here's the prayer we say at baptisms. Almighty and everlasting Father, in your great mercy, you saved Noah and his family in the ark from the destruction of the flood, prefiguring the sacrament of baptism. Look upon these, your servants, mercifully. Wash and sanctify them through your spirit, that they may be delivered from destruction and received into the ark of Christ's church. And being steadfast in faith, joyful through hope, and rooted in love, they may pass through the turbulent floods of this troublesome world and come into the land of everlasting life. We baptize pleading with God to do this work in the baptized. The baptism is a sign of a reality that we pray for. Looking at it from a different angle, perhaps it would be helpful to think about communion. We ask only baptized Christians who are trusting in Jesus to take communion it's a covenant family meal. We open the table to all who believe and have been baptized. And we recognize that the sacrament of communion is powerful. It doesn't merely serve as a reminder of Jesus' death. We also believe it is a powerful spiritual reality. Every week during the communion service, Father Pete or Father Christian says, the gifts of God for the people of God, take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Communion is a weekly feeding on Christ. We believe that we as children of the covenant need this just as much as we need to eat regularly. It becomes a, a normal part of our lives just as daily submission and trust does. Baptism is similar, but different. This practice of faith and feeding and communion has to start somewhere. It starts with a death. And since it's a death, it only happens once. Since we need to eat all the time, communion becomes a spiritual need we must regularly do. Baptism can only happen once because we can only die once. But to those of us who in faith have received the sacrament of baptism, it becomes a spiritual reality that nourishes us. It's something we can look back to. And that becomes even more important as we grow in the faith. Just as communion taken without faith is not effective, so baptism and its reality not received in faith, faith also is not effective. So we would not say you need to be baptized to be saved any more than we would say you need to take weekly communion to be saved. But participation in both is a vital part of the life of the believer. While communion is much more frequent, baptism has its own regularity too. Example of this, I, last week I was privileged to sit here and watch our friends Paula and Michael 
uh, commit their lives to each other in marriage. And while they were saying their vows without even thinking, I found myself reaching out to touch my ring. When I committed my life to Stephanie over 23 years ago, I had no idea where this journey would take me. The ring here isn't even the one she gave me that day. I've lost two of them. <laughs> and, and, and she doesn't hold it against me. <laughs> but that doesn't lessen the significance of the promise I made that day just because I didn't know where it was going to go. When one of us is baptized or in faith brings our child to baptism, we don't know the future. We don't know how our child will ride the waves of faith any more than we know how we will ride the waves of our lives. But we take on the mark of the covenant. And when we witness a baptism, we remember our own, whether we remember the event itself or not. I was reading a, a book by a Lutheran pastor this week. He wrote this about baptism. Baptism only happens once, but its significance goes on and on. For the rest of their life, every baptized child of God goes on dying and rising every day, dying to sin but rising to righteousness. The sin addict dies and is raised again and again to live no longer as a slave, but as a child in the Father's house. No matter what happens, our baptism reminds us we are dead to sin and will rise with Jesus. He is Lord over our death, our sin, our shame. And he gives us communion and baptisms as spiritual realities of our deliverance and need for him. Here in chapter 6 of Romans, Paul is asserting that reality when he says that our baptism is a death and resurrection. As it is the 4th of July weekend, many of us will be taking part in a lot of celebrations. These celebrations mark things about our home, the country in which many of us have citizenship. But this morning, I want you to be reminded of the reality of your citizenship in a different country. And while fireworks, cookouts, and family gatherings mark our 4th of July celebrations, be reminded of the marks of our heavenly citizenship. Gathering in the, in the community of faith, preaching the word of God, the weekly feasting at the table in Holy Communion, and the reality of the one baptism. We have been crucified and buried with Christ, and we have been raised with him. We are citizens of the heavenly country. We have been baptized into the death of Jesus. And as Paul puts it later in his epistle to the Romans, he is the firstborn of many. Always, always consider that. You are dead to sin. Baptized, risen with Jesus. And as our liturgy says, as the priest anoints little heads, <laughs> you are sealed and marked as Christ's own forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the way you feed us and the way you remind us of how much you love us. We pray that we would be obedient servants, not because we need to earn anything from you. You've done it all. 
but because we have been marked, we have been raised with you in newness of life. Amen.